0: Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look.
1: I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, tying in neatly with London Fashion Week, we are talking about diversity in fashion. Oh, we're good, aren't we, Jade? It's quite smart. I like it.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) as if we planned it. (laughs) Who would have thought? I know. (laughs) Anyway, we are so excited for you to hear this episode as we're going to be joined by two incredible guests fashion commentator Karen Franklin, MBE, and body image activist and researcher and newest member of CAR, Sharon Haywood. Exciting lineup. And
1: welcome, Sharon. Um, Sharon's been here a few months now, a couple of months. Yeah, since November. Over Christmas and everything. So, yeah, she's. Part car- of the furniture. <laughs> exactly. As if she never wasn't here. Um, so new to car, but not new to the podcast to Thank mention. You. Um, you will hear Sharon talking on episode 13, so please check that out. And actually, that was my very first episode on the podcast. As co-host. Way back when? I know. Special time in all our hearts. What a way we've came. I know.
0: I know. Come, come, come.
1: Okay. What a way we've come. How much we've grown. <laughs> We have Jade. We have yeah, in
0: in all honesty. In, in
1: all honesty, yeah, we've come super far. So, as with our last couple of episodes, we're not going to do a big intro because we want to give as much airtime to our guests as possible. But before we start, some very exciting news: Nadia has submitted her PhD. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I can't believe it's happened, but it has. Uh, that deserved a way bigger round of applause. I hope our listeners are
0: joining in. I know, like a big, big cheer. I think everyone involved is relieved. It's one of those things. They always say it takes a village, but I think it's like a village and their mates, but it, it's done. Bring their mates in. I know. I know. It,
1: it's not just a village. And, I, I mean, that's amazing. And it also makes it very scarily real that Katty and I are next.
0: Exactly, exactly. And actually, I still have a few things to do. So I will have a viva, which... Um, is basically, so you submit, when you do a PhD, you submit a thesis, which is a big, long, hefty book, book of Yep. They're so a big, hefty book, uh, 80,000 words, and then you submit that. Examiners look at it and then you have to defend your PhD and then so that's like a we call it a viva and it's kind of a conversation about your work and then you find out then if you pass or fail. Exactly. There's a few steps to go hurdles, through. And sometimes you get corrections you have to make after that viva So it's a bit of a process. So not doctor yet. No, but
1: submitting a thesis is a massive, massive step.
0: Big step one. Yeah. Big step one.
1: Um, you next, my friend. I know. Scary, scary. Um, I am just about to collect data actually from my final study. Um, so, hopefully, that goes swimmingly, yeah. and then... All
0: on track, all on track.
1: Well, you know, you got to plan for possibilities that aren't on track, but yeah.
0: thesis just, will be
1: there, like yeah, yours you did. just
0: do what you've got to do.
1: Keep chipping away exactly. is the key. Plod, plod along, keep going forward. And I mean, that that's more than just a thesis, that's life, isn't it? Keep
0: going, <laughs> keep chipping away. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Okay, so before we get to our guests... Let's bring it back. I am just like, oh my God, this is that great from such a tangent. Um, <laughs> pulling it back to our episode on diversity in fashion, before we get to our guests, we spoke, or rather actually you spoke, Jade, to some members of the public in Bristol at Bristol Fashion Week. Yeah, representing, keeping it local. Yes. About what diversity in fashion means to them and whether they think the fashion industry has a social responsibility to promote body confidence and to help people feel good in their bodies. And it
1: was actually super interesting, as people had lots of different viewpoints, naturally as you would when you go to the general audience. But we'd love to know what you, our listeners, think too. So please tweet at us, at car underscore uwe, to share your views. So let's hear from the people of Bristol. What does diversity in fashion mean to you?
2: Um, Expression yourself being your own person and staying not staying in the box of what everyone else thinks you need to wear or stuff like that yeah
3: it means allowing people to really learn that
4: their beauty comes from inside so there is something about what you wear on the outside complementing that but it has to come from an internal thing to start with so I think diversity of fashion is just being who you are, what you want to do with fashion. It's completely up to you. Like, you can be as creative as you want. You can be, like, minimalistic or whatever. It's just what makes you happy. Uh, I think it means sort of you can express yourself through what you wear. And that's sort of, like, you can show off your own style and,
2: yeah. Being yourself and not letting anyone judge you for who you are.
3: I mean, being petite is it's not really diverse because I'm such in a small number of people that everything here is quite large and also I'm petite in my feet so you know it's not really bringing in where I'm from I'm quite off so I don't feel it's very
2: diverse in bringing in the the smaller
3: they should have all the
2: ranges in whatever size you are really
3: Mm. so not just to think that you're small I mean everyone's different in shape so they ought
2: to accommodate for everyone really
5: making sure that everyone's like equal in fashion like they have the same rights as other people if someone like skinny is just like oh, I can go buy this, and then, like, their bigger friend goes along, and they're like, oh, they don't have my size, I can't buy it. Like, why can't I buy it? Because it's in a bigger size. Some shops don't have that. Some shops don't have the sizing, like, the right size. Some shops only go up
2: to a certain size, and it's like, oh. Um, It means just being able to wear what you want without people judging you, so that um, whatever your body shape or size, you can wear what you like and be able to express your personality through the clothes and style of the... Clothes that you wear? There should be a lot
3: more choice for the older person because, quite frankly, I can't find clothes that I like anywhere. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I'm Anyone? the one with the money. <laughs> <laughs> they I'm people of my age have got money to spend and we can't spend it because we can't find anything we like. That's exactly what I said this morning to my to my nan. No.
1: <laughs> Do you think fashion has a responsibility to promote body confidence? Body
4: confidence, absolutely without a doubt. So I work with girls with eating disorders who've been so damaged by the message that you have to look a certain way on the outside. And um, it needs to start early, needs to start in primary school, you need to learn who you really are.
5: Yes and no, because it's a lot up to fashion and the fashion industry, but then it's also up to the social media, like social media and what Instagram says that, what a perfect body is and what Facebook says a perfect body is and stuff like that. It's like that's important towards it as well. So basically um, it's not just fashion that's responsible. There is a, it is responsible, but there's loads of other things that are equally responsible. Yeah, for definite, because social media has a massive impact in fashion... And, like, just the whole body confidence, body positivity in general. It just has a massive impact.
1: Do you think fashion has a responsibility to help people feel better about themselves and in their bodies?
4: In ways, I feel like they do have a responsibility as they're promoting beauty, they're promoting, like, body confidence. It's really important for, like, girls who are curvy or girls who are skinny to feel amazing about themselves. And that's just basically what they need to do. Yes. Why?
1: Because everybody's different and it's not all, it's all the same stuff. It doesn't
3: help the bigger people. Yeah. Yeah, we're all different shapes and sizes and we should, you know, appreciate that fact instead of trying to be put in one little category. Does it make a difference to
5: you what the fashion industry does at all? It does because I personally, because I'm bigger, I struggle finding sizes and when I go into certain shops some of the sizings are off they say it's a 16 or an 18 and it's like a size like 12 and I'm like what's the point in that because that messes up the system I get that different shops have different sizing stuff but you still need to cater for those that are slightly bigger and make sure it still fits them and also don't make them feel horrible when they buy a bigger size because otherwise it makes them feel awful about themselves
1: Do you have any examples of brands that have done it well in terms of promoting body confidence and making you feel better about yourself?
4: So, I feel like most of the magazines now they're getting rid of like airbrushing, they're getting rid of like really skinny models. Um, and they've got like people like Ashley Graham promoting like a curvy person, which is amazing. And I feel like maybe like all the fashion brands are now incorporating like more curvy people and people who are different sizes, so it is amazing.
5: They don't really promote it, but Primark they always have the sizing for me and they always have like the sizing for some of my friends and they always like it always fits for most people and like I don't know because any other brand Mataland they also do the same thing always fits always does well that's always really good other than that I don't really go to any other shops because like if I find something I like I'm going to buy it there but like if I come into the mall sometimes um, next to do it sometimes um, River Island do it it all depends it really all depends what's there and what you're in, like into buying yeah, what you
0: want to buy. Brilliant, and we will be hearing more from our willing members of the public later on in the episode. Excellent, and shall we get to our first guest? Yes, let's. Karen Franklin, MBE, is a fashion commentator and is a hugely important and respected voice in British fashion. Karen has been writing and speaking about fashion for nearly 35 years, and UK listeners may know Karen as the presenter of the iconic clothes show, a primetime BBC television programme that aired from 1986 to 1998.
1: Karen is also known for her work at ID Magazine as fashion editor and later as co-editor. ID Magazine has a long-standing reputation for being a consistent source of inspiration in fashion culture and still runs
0: today as a popular website dedicated to fashion and creativity. Karen's been committed to diversity in fashion for decades, long before hashtag BOPO or body positivity was trending. She's worked with high street fashion retailers such as Next and Debenhams, as well as widely acclaimed high fashion photographers including Bankin, Kate Jones and Nick Knight on initiatives to foster positive body image in fashion, primarily by featuring diverse models. Unsurprisingly, in 2013, Karen was awarded an MBE for services to diversity in the fashion industry. And
1: today, Karen is a professor of diversity in fashion at Kingston University, So really, there couldn't be a more qualified person to talk to us on this topic.
0: Karen Franklin, welcome to Appearance Matters podcast. It's an absolute dream to have you on. I've been thinking about this moment for a long time, so thank you for joining me today.
3: Very kind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. So today we're going to be talking about diversity in fashion, uh, something that you have embodied throughout your career. So I've, again, been really, really excited to, to speak to you about this. So... Kind of diving straight in, I came across an article published in ID Magazine where you refer to yourself as a disruptive fashion lover, and I really like that turn of phrase. So I wonder if you would be happy sharing why you love fashion and what is it that you're disrupting?
3: Um, oh, that's a perfect start, isn't it? <laughs> the reason I love fashion is because I have seen over and over the ability of clothes and style to empower somebody if they feel confident to bring it into their life on their own terms. I know from my own experience of, you know, being very interested in image appearance and sort of that outward facing communication, that clothes have been an amazing tool for me, both Mm -hmm. a kind of comfort Uh, and protective tool you know they've been my it's been my blankie my duvet Mm -hmm. it's been my body armor Um, but also from a a psychological perspective clothes have helped me to step out and be my best self when I shut the front door behind me Mm -hmm. and so I've never stopped really believing in Clothing and and fashion and great design, you know, aimed Mm -hmm. at everybody, so Mm -hmm. everybody gets something out of it. Um, And the skills of these creatives to deliver something for us that is hugely beneficial. I began calling myself a disruptive fashion lover when I, I really felt I wanted to make a separation between fashion industry Mm goings-on and being someone who was saying I'm not supportive of this Mm -hmm. and I've got plenty to say about that but I still believe in the ability of fashion and clothes to make a positive contribution to people's lives.
0: Right and what is it that you want to dissociate yourself from or have that degree of separation from within the fashion industry. <laughs> very loaded long question, but
3: you said this is yeah. going to be quite short. <laughs> well, it you know it began very very early on when I began to think about the way that models were used mm-hmm. in fashion, and I began to hear stories from. Young women who, you know, I was a young woman myself, Mm -hmm. so women talk, and I had friends who had moved into modelling, and I would start to hear these stories of, um, you know, the fact that they were given no real uh, respect on a fashion shoot, um, that sometimes they weren't even addressed by their name. You know, uh, the recognition that they were mostly living on starvation rations Mm -hmm. in order to achieve this... Unachievable body ideal, even for them, and yet mm. they were promoting it out there to, um, you know, a, a huge audience, uh, and also, you know, b- uh, beginning to take on board the sort of lack of ethics and protocol around um, garment production and the way it right. would affect uh, workers over the other side mm-hmm. of the world, the way it was affecting the planet, so. You know, for me, you you can't just look as as many in fashion would like to at the glamour mm. and the spectacle and the the sort of marvelous existence that it can be. I mean, you know, did I say I love my job? Mm. Yes, I do. Mm. Uh, but without being able to look at the underbelly, without being present to the reality of what is going on in life, it's it's exactly the same as any other job, as any other kind of uh, moment in time where we exist in a complex environment. And we make sort of micro decisions all the time about whether we'll let something go, whether we feel brave enough to say Mm -hmm. something, whether we should learn more before we say something, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So I think this was exacerbated really by the fact that in the mid-80s, I began uh, presenting on a BBC primetime show which grew an audience of 13 million and was on um, for 12 years solid. Mm -hmm. So I would have people walk up to me in the street to discuss fashion. And this would be way before fashion editors were on social media with a photograph Mm -hmm. of themselves. So in a way... I became the face of fashion to everybody who had an issue. Mm -hmm. And I needed to do my own research so I could stop and have a conversation. I've never pretended to have the answers. Mm -hmm. But I do have opinions and I do have experiences which I'm happy to share.
0: Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And I think what you said about... You are able to love your job and love fashion while still being able to critique the system and the structure and the the downsides of fashion, I think is really important and powerful for people to hear. Because I think sometimes it feels that you have to be all of one or the mm-hmm. other.
3: And so I like that you can hold the two together. I mean, listeners, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, there are, as with any job, there are head-in-the-hands mm-hmm. moments where you think, I just don't think I can go on mm-hmm. and there are times where you doubt yourself there are times where you feel you're achieving nothing there are times certainly times where I have felt you know I'm ashamed of my industry mm-hmm. but at the same time because I'm a people person and I'm just lucky that I'm able to deal with people you know individual people on a on a sort of case-by-case basis that I see what good design and what um, you know a, a sort of psychological boost to their sense of self that good mm-hmm. good fashion can e- enact, and so that's where my faith is. Mm-hmm. It, it's a hugely powerful psychological t- tool when it's used to its best effect. Yeah, yeah, I I really like that.
0: So. My next question, why is it important for fashion to be diverse and inclusive of different types of bodies?
3: We have seen massive changes in, certainly in the um, nearly 40 years that I've been mm-hmm. in the industry, um, but one that has been obvious has been the growth of interest in appearance and in um presentation of oneself, uh, followed by the growth of the industry's ability to communicate with its audience. When I began, you really had to wait for photographs from the catwalk shows Mm -hmm. to appear in a handful of select magazines. And we had to wait months and months and months because the process was so slow. Obviously, then fashion moved on to TV Mm -hmm. and began to reach out to large audiences. But that would be nothing compared to social media platforms that would give every single brand an opportunity to face outwards to the world. And so throughout that time, we have seen a proliferation and an acceleration of Imagery um, where we have very narrow body ideals mm-hmm. that are um, primarily uh, relied upon. You know, fashion, the fashion industry depends on um, a very young, mm-hmm. thin, white, able bodied, uh, compliant human to perform femininity according mm. to male gaze now I'm aware that what I just said there is quite loaded but <laughs> <laughs> and so fashion has to know that it has um, a huge power to influence people not just positively mm. but negatively yeah. about themselves and if it isn't looking to be accountable in the messaging that it's putting out then there has to be people like me who will Mm -hmm. say this isn't just about being as edgy as you can be and Mm -hmm. being as as sort of luxury and high-end glamour as you can be. This is about talking to other human beings about what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. And if you're giving them such a narrow pathway to follow, then you are responsible You know, I use that word, Mm -hmm. responsible, and it doesn't make me particularly popular. You are responsible for the mental health of the people that you are putting this imagery in front of, and increasingly they are younger and younger Mm -hmm. audiences.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I know we've spoken together about this before, but um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the influence of the male gaze, how that works within fashion, I think you said something really interesting that com- sometimes gets missed from, from these kind of conversations about fashion, model ideals, about the compliancy mm. element there. And I wonder, not a very well-formed question, but <laughs> if, you can, um, if you could just speak a little bit more on that.
3: I mean, to me, this all comes under the same u- umbrella. So yeah. when we began All Walks Beyond the Catwalk... Um, our kind of, you know, shorthand strapline was diversity in front of the lens and behind the mm-hmm. lens, so that it's not just about the portrayal of that human being, but it's about all the people involved in creating that right. portrayal. Um, and so, um, you know, particularly, what well, of particular interest to me was the fact that it's not for nothing that models... Who are, you know, catwalk models and editorial models are incredibly young. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the sort of professional kind of patter will be that they have an amazing skin which needs mm-hmm. a lot less post production, but there oh. are, you know, and, and they are naturally um, sort of youthful and slender. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, that's a falsehood in itself because so many young women have to diet in order Mm. to fit this ideal Mm -hmm. Um, but there's another aspect there is that models are not given any uh, sort of selfhood not given any agency there's no space for them to actually bring themselves into the shoot Mm -hmm. because they take direction from a photographer who will um, along with makeup artist and stylist. Who will have created the this image, and who will then shape how this human body appears? So that certainly in um, there's quite well documented kind of conversations that have taken place around top imagery, where. People who aren't into fashion will look at them and say, But why does that woman look so unwell? Why mm-hmm. does she look like she's had an accident and she's sort of arranged in such a way that she might be hurt? Why does she look frightened? Mm-hmm. Why does she look, um, you know, the, the question I sort of often ask is, Why is she selling me, the viewer, women's clothing on her body? And I, as a female viewer, I'm looking at her, but she's asking me if I want to shag her. (laughs) Because that sort of, come on, give give it to me look, that models are often expected Mm -hmm. to deliver, is sort of intercepted by male gaze, where there's a sense of entitlement that the model should perform for the male photographer, unless Mm -hmm. that photographer is conscious. And is really looking to deliver something that isn't about sexual allure, because women can be powerful in a variety of guises without having to ask the question, "Am I shaggable?"
6: Mm. As
3: you know, we we see so frequently in our fashion imagery, and and what often I do look you know show with my students is a variety of bog-standard images where the woman is always asking the question, do you like me? Mm-hmm. Am I attractive? Mm-hmm. Am I shaggable? You know, in a variety of ways. And the male model always knows the answer. You know, we, we are acculturated even when we don't realise that we're getting this information about performance of gender. And, you know, thank you, Judith Butler, for that um, piece of vocabulary. Because that's one of the things certainly I've found, um, you know, in my time Mm -hmm. is that things that I struggled to explain in the early days and relied upon instinct and feminism, cod feminism, Mm -hmm. you know, not feminist theory, Mm -hmm. um, in order to kind of get me through, I now have you know, better descriptive language for because there are so many humans who have been out there on the front line discussing the reality of their world mm. and their narrative and you know, their lived experience um, certainly when we began I was never able to draw on the words race privilege mm. to use as a shorthand to describe a huge disparity between the creative thinkers and the way in which they were um, sort of appropriating or, mm. you know, sort of redefining conversations, visual conversations around race. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it's not unreasonable actually for me to just say, actually, I've been really lucky. I've worked in fashion for nearly 40 years, I've learned a really, <laughs> <laughs> a lot. You know, as a result of people telling their truth. Mm. I mean,
0: there is so much you said in there, and I I think I could pick so many different points and we could have a two-hour discussion on each. And I think there was recently um, another one, because it's not the first time it's happened, and it's probably just as well, I can't remember, Remember the name of the fashion brand that has done it with having white models or with cornrows going down the catwalk, and we're still having the same conversations about cultural appropriation within fashion. So that's um, uh, at the forefront of my mind. But there's something else. Well, there's a number of things that are, are really interesting in what you've said, and I think are surprising to the outsider, to the fashion outsider, the fashion industry outsider. Maybe I should say is why is it that we have adolescent models selling adult women's clothes? Um, and yes, they might have the aspirational body type, but, and the skin, the skin is something that I hadn't thought about as much. I was thinking more about the the physique, but I was speaking with Nomi Shimada with... Um, with Honey Ross on another podcast, that I I do, and and she was modelling from the age of thirteen for adult women, um, and and again the kind of conversation about how she was positioned to pose, so she was posing as a thirteen year old mm-hmm. in a way that she, she didn't fully understand. Um, so and her reflecting on that with hindsight, because so she loved doing the modelling, she found it fun and, and enjoyable, but as a thirteen year old was posing in this sexualized way without fully understanding her sexual being and sexuality as a as a young woman because she was 13. Um, and her reflections on that are, are just so interesting. And for I sure, think it's yeah. something that, again, we're not always joining, or well, I haven't in the past joined the dots with, um, because I think we, it, we can get stuck on the aspirational, very thin beauty ideal models. And then actually all the repercussions that that has for different people in different ways, is really interesting to me.
3: The simplest way that I can explain things and maybe have explained them mm. to myself is that dominant culture, which is a certain kind of masculinity. So let, let me just make this mm. really clear. I'm not saying all men. Mm-hmm. I'm not even saying men. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying dominant culture masculinity, mm-hmm. where there is a sense of entitlement to centralize their view of the world. So the, that leadership position is taken up by a very privileged human mm-hmm. who has risen to the top through advantages that they have uh, in a variety of spaces. Um, but we could define them for the sake of simplicity mm. as you know, white male cis gender mm-hmm. heteronormative mm-hmm. able-bodied mm-hmm. and i'm sure there are, are many other descriptions we could follow mm-hmm. with that and so the fact is they view the world and expect others to kind of fall in and learn mm-hmm. that language and so the the very young compliant woman is not able to question that mm-hmm. yet yeah. and so dominant culture wants a certain type of femininity um, almost sees femininity as a service provider as a prop Mm. to their view of the Mm. world and you know certainly again well documented are the conversations by model agents who have said you know when a model gets older she begins to question things she Mm. begins to think for herself and they can't make money out of someone who's doing that and so it's very important for them yeah. to have someone who doesn't really, has yet to learn the way the world works mm. and maybe goes forward uh, with the assumption that there is there are ethics out there mm. and there is fair play out mm. there. Um, and, you know, let's add on to that, the, the, you know, our complex general mass media imagery that has presented femininity... Um, primarily is sexualized. Mm-hmm. So very young girls see that space as a powerful kind of portal into mm-hmm. adulthood and are in a rush to get there because yeah. that's what where they see cultural approval, whether yeah. it be in yeah. films, in imagery, in advertising. There's a kind of unspoken space that that is something to aim for. And so there's a kind of perfect storm in a way. Mm-hmm. And you know an example of that would be Miley Cyrus and Wrecking Ball, right? Yeah. Where I remember my thirteen-year-old at the time; she's now um, twenty, showing me this video mm-hmm. shot by Terry Richardson, mm-hmm. um, latterly outed as one of our most prolific predators, mm. s- asking me because you know she'd grown up with Miley Cyrus, asking me, Mum why do I just feel so spooked out by this mm. video? Because this was, mm. um, you know, a young pop singer. Yeah. And, she, and um, so I began to sort of break it down for her. And, you know, she she and her sister were not unfamiliar with many of the, yeah. sort of the conversations that we were having that day. But the fact is, Miley Cyrus trusted a group of older, mm-hmm. sort of you know, middle-aged, experienced record execs, mm-hmm. uh, and they bring in their mate, the yep. photographer, to frame it in such a way that they can, they can serve their idea of um, this artist's persona. Now, would she have chosen that on her own? I don't, I'm not entirely sure she would have that. Would she have even gravitated to that space if she had a, a female team with her interests at heart? And maybe there would have been raw sexual energy there, but it wouldn't have been appropriated by male gaze in the way that it was. And so, you know, what we, we have in a way is this culture which... Many of us aren't even kind of aware, has permeated our mm. thinking. Right. And so, where, you know, one of the jobs that I kind of uh, award myself with is alerting the next generation of mm. young creatives right. to that culture that they've taken on board with some quite frankly listeners some very hard-hitting imagery Mm. and some very provocative language but nobody falls asleep in my (laughs) lectures I bet I bet and I think that
0: it's important to bring into this conversation that this is the the imagery the sexualized imagery the thin ideal type-esque appearance ideal imagery is not limited to fashion and it 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 transcends culture Mm. and I think Recently on the podcast, we spoke to Philippa Deidrex and Hannah Burns from Dove and Rebecca Swift um, from Getty Images and around the work that they're doing with Project Show Us and using female photographers or, or non-binary photographers and models to, and actually the collaboration is with Girl Gaze as well. So then how that actually shows a very different type of, of image and how girls, women non-binary individuals opposed again it's different and so I think just mm. seeing that if can be powerful you know seeing someone not with their legs apart a woman with their doesn't have their legs apart and actually is like standing on two feet not like mm. leaned on one hip or mm. is doing something I think is really powerful and what makes that initiative really interesting and I think again going back to the having it's not just who's in front of the lens, who's behind the lens and who's in that wider team. Because I think sometimes when we see campaigns that have like fallen flat and are embarrassing, frankly, it's like, how has this gone through so many different people? Mm. And you think if the team was diverse and had a range of perspectives... That, well, that would happened. have been spotted, that, <laughs> yeah, no, I you
3: know, know. At pre-planning. Yes,
0: is that it? Because
3: someone had gone would have just gone. Well, why is that a good idea?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I want to move on and ask you, kind of related to all of this, but and I kind of dread to think how many times over the point of your career you've been asked this. But with representation in fashion, with diversity in fashion can it be profitable if we're thinking about this from a real business perspective, from the industry perspective, can having diverse bodies, whether it's race, whether it's shape, body size, different, can we show different types of bodies and it be profitable and good for business in that way? When the model seems to be, models need to be aspirational and the idea of like sex cells, skinny cells, youth cells, or, you know, those kind of things.
3: Well, we've got, see. We've got, in a way, we've got two different questions there. So I'm going to sort of section it okay. out. So, so this aspiration mm. of the youthful thin, sexual mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. is it, it's almost like we've been given this one ideal mm-hmm. and we've all taken it on board as this is what sells. Okay. Because it has only ever been that, that kind of role, yeah. model that we we look at. So we've been educated into that from day one. So there's a lot of fear about stepping out of that mm-hmm. on yeah. everybody's kind of part if they are involved in, in um, promoting a brand mm-hmm. in which quarterly profit returns are reviewed and their sure. job is on the line. So, you know, I would suggest that we, you know, certainly in you know, recent years mm. with brands recognising that they have a global audience and they can't adopt a one-size-fits-all message, mm. narrative, image, invitation to sell, that they've begun to look at what they need to say specifically because we're no longer in a marketplace where people buy because they need yeah, they buy yeah. because they yeah. want. Right. So they have to be, um, you know, ineffectively, in warmly invited to to come and fill the merchandise. Mm-hmm. And so, certainly, what studies are are showing us is that, um, and you know, there, there was one in particular which which certainly helped me when I was sitting across boardrooms. From Dr. Ben Barry at mm-hmm. Judge Business School, Cambridge University, um, who was able to show through using three thousand participants cross-culturally that when um, they looked at a picture, they looked to make a shared bond with the model who was most like them. Mm-hmm.
0: You know,
3: through those those shared characteristics. Mm-hmm. And when they could actually do that, fix on someone, they showed an increased intention to purchase by up to 300%. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's what older women have been saying for a very Mm -hmm. long time, that they need to see a garment on someone who looks like them if they are going to spend four times Mm -hmm. the amount on an item of clothing than their younger counterparts. It's what people uh, of variable sizes mm-hmm. have been saying for a very long time um, and what people of you know mixed skin tones, mm-hmm. of a range of skin tones have been saying. I need to see the makeup on my skin. Mm-hmm. I can't make assumptions based on somebody else's completely different appearance or body shape. And so as people's markets are expanding and they're looking to go into different territories this absolutely has to be taken mm. on board this together with sort of artificial intelligence means that people are looking for data that gives them you know a clear idea of who is buying mm-hmm. and when and why and so you know we are looking at a stage now where it's not just the feedback data when someone makes a purchase but brands now need to be putting out Opportunities for for people to be given a better service through fit yeah. or through formulation. So I worked with Sarang Ganatilake um, for many years um, to his company is called Body Metrics to right. try and deliver body scanning into a commercial space because what that delivers for retailers is the demographic of their customer in their area so that they can better align their sizes their products their formulations to you know blow by blow area by area what is needed rather than again just putting out mm-hmm. product and yep. it having to go on sale mm-hmm. because the guesswork didn't all tally up that that it, again it's one of the things that
0: it just makes so much sense and I think Um, kind of talking about the, the body sizing thing and seeing someone in your own size in the garment when you're looking online or whatever and it's I think ASOS just this week seemed to have done something I saw something on Twitter earlier this week where they've you can click on each different size and there's a corresponding size model wearing that item and you're like well why is this new? Why yeah. is this radical? This is, it seems yeah. such a simple idea, but it makes such a difference because then you can see how the item's going to fit and you have a better sense. And to, to me, again, as an outsider from fashion, you're like, oh, I'm more inclined to buy something where I have a better idea of what it's going to look like because I, I've got a better sense of it.
3: Absolutely. And again, we come back to, I'm just going to pick up on that mm. word aspiration. Mm. There's an assumption that we aspire to being thin as Mm. as a natural kind of desire for sort of self-improvement and studies again show that um, we don't we're not driven to go towards thin as a default setting we want to be our best selves certainly older women do not are not driven to uh, move towards trying to look younger. Mm. They just want to look good at the age they are. And and one of the things I'm thrilled about is that the conversation around size Mm. is finally beginning to acknowledge that using thin as a kind of stick-on motif to represent all things good health-wise is entirely incorrect. And that, you know, because health agencies have jumped on Mm -hmm. this as a a shorthand, there's been this sort of almost um, holy endorsement that sin is right. When in fact, we know that um, that's no guarantee Mm -hmm. for good health across a variety of different kind of measures.
0: Sure. Yeah, com- completely. I, mean, I think we it comes up time and time again. You can't tell someone's health by looking at them by their size. It's not a good indicator of health. So that's, again, just one of those things that kind of, when we get past that point, then, then we can kind of think about, about these things more creatively. And actually, then it becomes more about the core of fashion kind of linking back to what you're saying about why you love fashion, about kind of it becoming, it's more about the art of it rather than it
3: just becoming something that's prescribed. Agreed. And there's also something that's just sort of jumped into Mm. my head is that, you know, these thin ideals are very Caucasian Mm. and that we have, you know, a variety of beauty ideals from around the world that um, up until now, really, Mm. have been kind of ignored or marginalised. And so, you know, a curvaceous body is, um, you know, that is aspirational for many women, mm-hmm. and we just haven't been given the this glamorized curvaceous body as something that uh, has been normalised mm-hmm. in our mass media.
0: Yeah, yeah, d- definitely, the status quo has has a a. a white lens on it mm. right so we, we talk about the kind of patriarchal lens but also this kind of white white lens as well we've got a lot of work to do
3: yeah i know i know and we really have sitting so here thinking we oh shouldn't my, be sitting here having a cup of tea I know. Should we? <laughs> I know so i
0: mean you've been working in in this space for such a long time but what do you see as the main barriers today to make fashion more diverse more inclusive
3: it's a really interesting space, and mm-hmm. I, you know I was thinking which which are the most succinct things that i I can say to this answer um, I would say lazy brains right. and fear and um unwillingness to undo something that seems to work according to the person who's benefiting right so leadership teams where there are very there's very limited diverse perspective those need to be. Unpicked, But mm-hmm. that's not a simple job. Sure. Um, I'm a big believer in quotas. Until we have mm-hmm. more parity, in which case then let's uh, be able to recruit on the individual and uh, meritocracy. But um, what we have at the moment is business leaders saying, I want to be able to pick the best from the pool that I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. But there's been no specific work done to reflect uh, a diverse contribution, to bring mm-hmm. a diverse contribution. So the same old, same old job invites have gone out in the same old magazines, and they haven't looked for other places to mm-hmm. recruit a you know a, a newer perspective, a different perspective, yeah. whether it be race, whether it be body difference, mm-hmm. whether it be um, uh, sort of gender. Mm. non-conformity mm-hmm. difference you know we're in a space now and you know for anything else that i may have missed out because you know there is mm-hmm. yeah, you know many, there's a shopping yeah, list yeah. that needs to be gone through here but to to kind of go oh well nobody turned up so yeah. don't tell me i have to pick the one woman in yeah. the group of 10 men yeah. for example yeah so um you know Actually dismantling the unconscious bias that that we all hold,
0: yeah, and that's a conversation that again, not just limited to fashion, right I think' it's yeah. something that it's it's a much broader conversation, but very relevant in terms of with fashion, how
3: then people are catered for and represented yeah and i and I want to you know acknowledge at this stage that that's not easy, yeah, and yeah. that's not something that can just be rolled out as a mm-hmm. tick box, and mm-hmm. I think that's been one of the problems. Mm-hmm. the word diversity is so overused mm-hmm. um, and people often think it's a matter of oh well, you know we invited this person, so we've we've met our agenda or because it's it is hard i've been mm-hmm. involved in in lots of situations in which i've done recruiting for a more diverse uh, team, where be they models, be they creatives, and it's more time-consuming mm-hmm. and it's more costly. One mm-hmm. of the things I've uh, started to say now is, when I'm asked to contribute to something, is mm-hmm. no, you don't need me. You don't need another white middle-class able-bodied cis woman <laughs> because you've already got yeah. plenty of, of those represent. You know that mm-hmm. representation on your panel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, I guess, is another space in which those of us with privilege can think about how brave we can be mm-hmm. and what we're willing to say in order to, you know, whether that makes us unpopular or not. But in order to um, just disrupt, right, um, small or large, I mean, I often say to my students, you know, just simply asking a question, why? hmm allows for that question to be in the room with other people thinking can, can that be answered can I answer that mm. rather than keeping silent you know the power of one yeah when we get together as a collective especially with the help of social media yeah. you know it's yeah. a great vehicle yeah. for passing on information I've done some of yeah, my completely. best learning yeah um, you know that for me fills me with optimism about right. the way we go forward
0: mm-hmm yeah brilliant brilliant so penultimate questions that I've got a very important one to end on that we end all our podcasts <laughs> with. Uh you know what's coming but um, I'm really curious because you you've had this long uh, career in fashion and more recently you went back and studied and did a master's in the psychology of fashion and I'm yeah just really curious about what you've taken from that what What did that bring you, um, or make you think about differently?
3: So um, you know, many things. Um, Mm -hmm. All credit to Dr. Carolyn Mayer, who ran the course, um, and she specialises in in cognitive psychology. So that you know was a great um, you know space for me to really get to grips with something that previously um, I I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And what I took from that immediately. Uh, almost in a way to stop beating myself up, that I wasn't explaining what need to happen mm. well enough, that it must be my fault that I wasn't being clear enough or I wasn't perhaps getting in front of the right people or I wasn't creating the right initiatives, was that, um, you know, every individual perceives things differently right. according to the story that they yeah. will construct for yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so, therefore, we're talking about millions of different... Um, ways in which mm-hmm. we hear something, mm-hmm. but that there, there is a, a pathway taken by dominant culture, you know, those who are the most insistent that it's mm-hmm. done their way, that um, unifies people whether they like it or not. And when I realised that, I, I just felt I could I could let myself off and realise, you know, the truth mm-hmm. was that I couldn't change the world. Okay. and I might think I should by the time I step out of fashion certainly on the issues that matter to me in fashion but that um, I perhaps could go forward with more humility that this simply wasn't a thing that could be dealt with in, in a simple way.
0: Yeah I mean that's, that's so interesting to, to hear you say someone who's such a, a big influence in fashion and and I think someone who has done so much over over the years um but I think it also ties back to what we were saying before we started recording about these conversations about greater diversity in fashion are happening again and again in different Mm -hmm. silos and are not coming together and the same thing is being said and it never moves forward so it's there's something else blocking that path Mm -hmm. there and, and that maybe it is that people are kind of hearing it and either choosing not to wanting to act on it or, or just not hearing it in the right way for them at that time. But I think it's also we can hear something in two different ways or we can hear something in the same way, but one day it clicks and one day it doesn't. So I think there's... there's
3: I think there's also there. something else, isn't there, that, um, you know, we are essentially bombarded with a world that seems to be ethics-free, Right. on many levels right. and so compassion fatigue and yeah. feeling right. perhaps powerless yeah. also comes mm-hmm. into the frame and so that space in which we all I do it mm. where we go thank goodness that person cares mm. about that and he's gonna you know take that forward you know thank you Greta Thunberg yeah. you know yeah. um Thank you, people who stand up and make a noise because I don't know if I could be making as good a noise as you. Right. So right. I'll, I'll sort of get behind you. Yeah. Um, so I I you know I think, again, it's sort of natural for us to feel somehow that um, because somebody's dealing with it, it will yeah. be taken care mm-hmm. of. And, you know, I think if, if I've learned anything going forward is that brands, however willing... Cannot self-regulate. You know Mm -hmm. they're dependent on CEOs who, for their tenure, will Mm -hmm. be adventurous and brave, but are still under pressure to make sure the quarterly profit returns Mm -hmm. are in line. You know, year on year, like for like. But they move off, and somebody else comes on board, and so there has to be a bigger auditing body outside of the. The, right. the, the brands and the individuals mm-hmm. themselves, where those who are earning mm-hmm. the most set something up that everybody benefits from, mm. you know, whether it be the individual or it is the collective. And I certainly see that conversation you know, needing to come to a head, particularly around the uh, sexual exploitation mm. of young mm-hmm. vulnerable models and yeah. predators within our industry. And just the lack of rights that they Mm. have, and that's that's not to undermine sort of garment worker rights over the other side of the world, and and their dire solution. Um, But I think there is a you know one photographer said it very well in um, when I did my my study for my masters, and um, he said glamour is a con. And, you know, those of us mm. who work in it know that there's all these smoke and mirrors and all of these extra effects that come in to make something look highly uh, sort of aspirational mm-hmm. and beautiful. And it's, it's the fashion industry is so good at doing that that, that they can mask uh, rape culture mm-hmm. that takes place mm-hmm. in, in imagery, um, you know, underage, sexualized um, uh, sort of models mm-hmm. um models who are ill uh, that they can with this amazing power and the way in which they can and this is a skill mm-hmm. you know i don't want to undermine anybody this is what they do they do so well mm-hmm. yeah but ethics are required yeah. at the same time to make this travel in the right direction
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, my mind is going in so many different directions because I think everything you're saying is is so um, juicy in that way. Because I think there's there's again so many different avenues of like, okay, what what is what is it that happens next? So yes, if there's a, a regulatory body, but then then I think there is a consumer power that we've again I think we've spoken about in terms of where there is now more and more of a conversation between brands and, and the consumer, thanks to social media, where you can be like, you know what, this is what I want. And this is, um, so there's the kind of calling out, calling in a brand, but then there's also like where you spend your money. Absolutely.
3: Um, and we do have the ultimate, ultimate power mm-hmm. on that. You know, we're not mindless consumers. We're yeah. citizen participants. Yeah. We vote. with our money and I also you know I do want to shout out to all the amazing educationalists within fashion and to all the amazing individuals in fashion who all try and hold their Mm. own space in pursuit of a better Mm -hmm. process for for everyone um I often feel like I I you know I should stand back and just say that on, on many levels there are so many of mm-hmm. us out there now that we we have to reach a tipping point uh, yeah. at some point in which the next generation of creatives are the leaders yeah and I I will happily be old school thinking and just cheering from the sidelines right. because I am very excited about what needs to happen um, with um, a more sort of diverse, Uh, leadership who Mm -hmm. know where they're going and who also have the energy and the passion to to deliver to stay on the horse
0: yeah and I I guess what I really appreciate about this conversation is all the the nuance involved and and kind of saying that actually some of this work is really hard there's aspects of it that's really difficult you are pushing against the state of the the idea of it being hard but also being frightened on a personal level like do you want to be the person that rocks the boat and then gets a slap on the wrist or or maybe just not the promotion or actually losing your job as a consequence of like getting a campaign wrong because of the again the structure that people are working in within within the brand. And I think with the um bits of work that I've done when I've spoken to people within industry and not limited to fashion but fashion advertising and beauty, I think there are lots of people who want things to be different. But I think there is that deer in headlights aspect maybe where it's like, what is the next step as someone who's junior, perhaps? And I think people can relate to that mm. feeling beyond fashion, advertising and beauty. I think with mm. if there's any industry that you're in and you're a junior person and you want change, how do you do that as a junior person while yeah. still maintaining your pathway up, right? So I think that's um, an angle that we don't always consider when we're thinking we want brands to be different because I think there are people within brands who want things to be different also. Um, but then it, it's just trying to get everyone aligned on that mm. vision, because I think you kind of need everyone more or less on a, on a same page to get things through in in an authentic way. Um, so it's, it's, again, these are not easy questions and they're no simple answers. But I think what I really appreciate is the nuance and the different insights to how this, what makes this difficult and how... We can even just think about finding different
3: pathways forward. I would definitely say to anyone who is, you know, at the beginning yeah. of their career, um, that it, it it you know just by being their unique selves, by not suppressing who they are, mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. is, um, they take that into whatever industry in a way they mm-hmm. go into. And they empower others to be mm-hmm. their unique selves. And so, you know, we we have a space in which we are be able to be more vocal about our differences because we recognize they are a strength. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, I certainly would never, you know, put um, the... The kind of thrust for making change happen at the feet of people who have just entered the industry, because it's so oversubscribed mm-hmm. and you know highly competitive that to get a foot in the door with an agenda mm-hmm. that you would like to you know, bring forward, but even by you know by stealth because mm-hmm. you want to stay in the mm-hmm. industry is is a huge. Um, Achievement in itself, Mm -hmm. because you are going to be empathic and thoughtful to everyone you meet. You're going to listen to other people's opinions and you're going to occasionally ask questions that people Mm. might have to think a little bit harder about the answer they give you. And you're going to gather. Um, to a point where you know you've collected information, you've collected experience, you've collected status mm-hmm. and respect, and there there will be a point in which you can enact the change that you'd like to yeah. see further down the line. I mean you know we're on on many levels you know in industry it's a massive tanker that we're trying mm. to turn around we We have to play the long game, and the idea that that people who do care, feel mm-hmm. disheartened and disenchanted and need to leave, and that leaves people who don't have any agendas to go forward in their mm-hmm. own sweet way, mm-hmm. um, you know, is is sort of disastrous, really. We need good people in, taking it, you know, on their terms, mm-hmm. forward, um, and, and just staying in there and being vocal.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important, I hope, um, have lots of listeners in in, 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 in fashion like taking heed with that because I think mean that uh, is a really important message and actually not just in in fashion um Karen I could talk to you all day but I um we've come to the cake question. I know but we have come to the cake question so as you know very important to us at the Centre for Appearance Research we have a cake and coffee morning every Thursday and um the question for you is what cake would you bring along and why
3: it would be death by chocolate <laughs> it would be a kind of juicy sticky delicious mix um but it would have to be um gluten and dairy free right um so um, one of the things I often find is I do cook my own cakes okay. um, that gets brownie points but I just got to forewarn you that um they always just come out like a brick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, well take that back <laughs> um,
3: So I you know, maybe I bring some dairy free chocolate ice cream and some, you know, other things to go with it. You know, some fresh strawberries just to kind of
0: Well, I think I think you can get very good dairy free brownies gluten-free brownies i think it's definitely been done
3: at a car coffee morning you so can but um but listener of course you knew i'd be complicated (laughs) i don't know what it is about some of these brands i get really bad reactions to them so i'm trying to avoid the thing and then i buy something that says it's the thing that you're trying to avoid is not in it but there's definitely something else oh no (laughs) oh dear but yeah so i I could i could bring some shop bought for you as well as my own um
0: Little brick. <laughs> okay, well well whatever. It would be a delight and an honour to have you at our coffee morning.
3: Thank
0: you. Karen, thank you so much for this interview. I've really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners will. I know our listeners will too, but thank you so much. Thank
3: you,
0: Nadia. That
1: was great. She's so brilliant. I could listen to her for hours, honestly.
0: I know, same. I love Karen so much. She's so, um, I feel like inspiring is such an overused, cliche word, but she's, she's just, Oh, it's nice to be in her presence. I love the way that you
1: respond. <laughs> you didn't have any words, you just had, oh
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's just nice to be around
1: her and, and listen to her talk, for that, sure. I agree. Our next guest is body image activist and researcher Sharon Hayward. Sharon has a background in psychology and social work. Plus, she's worked as a freelance writer and editor for the past 10 years. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Sharon has recently joined CAR, working with you, in fact, Nadia.
0: Yes, that's right. Sharon's working with me and Kirsty Garbett on a number of projects in Indonesia as part of the wider Dove Self-Esteem Project Partnership team at CAR,
1: led by Professor Philippa Tiedrichs. Exactly and as I mentioned earlier Sharon featured on our podcast episode on social activism where she talks about how she and the collective called Endangered Bodies got Facebook to remove the feeling fat emoji in the status update because fat is not a feeling and this expression is generally considered unhelpful both to those struggling with eating disorders or who actually are in higher bodies or fat, bearing in mind the two things are not mutually exclusive as well. And we also discussed that a little bit in our previous episode with Ollie on weight stigma.
0: Right, and it's really important to stress that you can have an eating disorder at any size. It's not just people who are lower weight, so you can experience an eating disorder across the weight spectrum.
1: That's a really good point, because I think sometimes people can, like stereotype that eating disorders only happen in lower weight bodies yeah that's well I think I everyone just thinks
0: about anorexia right and, yeah and even anorexia can happen across uh, different weights it's not just you don't have to be extremely extremely low weight per se it can be just low weight for your body your own body definitely that's a really
1: important point point. and actually back to Sharon again <laughs> yeah. um so as part of the endangered bodies global collective Sharon was involved in a lengthy campaign to remove cosmetic surgery gaming apps aimed at children, successfully resulting in Apple and Amazon eventually removing these apps.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite incredible to think that these apps even existed in the first place, that the apps are directly encouraging children to think about how they can, quote-unquote, look better through cosmetic surgery. So the app, through the app, you can, like, change, you know, you can kind of give yourself, like, a nose job or, like, yeah. um, lip fillers or whatever. Um, it's so gross. And kind of in the name of activism, the Google App Store still offers these games. So a bit of pressure on Google there to get rid of those because it's, we don't want our children thinking uh, about no. their bodies in that way.
1: That's not helpful for anyone.
0: Yeah, I'm, like, I'm actually, like, lost for words. It's like, yeah. Yeah, so like you said, yeah.
1: Google Shape Up. Mm-hmm. Um, then, more recently, as part of her work with Anybody Argentina, the Argentine chapter of Endangered Bodies. Yeah, so you've
0: got the Global Collective Endangered Bodies, and then you've got the separate chapters. So you've got anybody which is in London, anybody in Germany, anybody in Argentina. I think there's an island, there's an island branch, I'm not sure, but I think so there, there is, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's how the, the
1: branding works. Yeah. So, thanks for explaining that. Sharon and her team helped change the law on sizing in Argentina. I mean, we say it like it's easy. I
0: know, but if you think it's huge, it's huge. That's That's, massive. And it's that particular piece of activism that I caught up with Sharon about last week, um, actually whilst we were in Jakarta on a work trip. Fab. Yeah. Let's hear Sharon, welcome to Appearance Matters the Podcast. It's a delight to have you. Thank you, Nadia. It's a
6: delight to be here. Brilliant.
0: So I want to talk to you today, as you know, about some of the work and advocacy work that you have been doing in relation to clothes sizing, mm-hmm. um, linking back to your time in Argentina. But before we get to the size law and the work that you've done around that, mm-hmm. could you give some Kind of contextual background on appearance ideals in Argentina. Um, You gave a talk to the team at CAR and kind of gave a bit of that context, and I found it fascinating. So I wonder if you mind just sharing a little bit of that uh, for the podcast.
6: Sure. Sure. Um, Just to give the listeners a bit of context, um, I am Canadian, so I'm Mm -hmm. not an Argentine woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And I moved to Buenos Aires, uh, the capital of Argentina, in 2004. Mm -hmm. So prior to me coming to the Center for Appearance Research as a research associate, um, I had been living there for 15 years. Right um so when i first arrived in buenos aires um i guess the, the best way to describe it is that the visual culture kind of took my breath away mm-hmm. um i found it a bit jarring um the visual representation of women in the streets especially right. that's one thing that really s- jumped out at me um and just kind of a caveat a couple caveats okay. When I arrived in Argentina, I wasn't an activist, right. so it's not like I was looking for how women were represented.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
6: Um, I arrived with a social work background, mm-hmm. with aspirations to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I my observations kind of came to me rather than me mm-hmm. looking for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second caveat, I guess, is that I do recognize that the the kind of Eurocentric global beauty ideal that we're Mm -hmm. faced with Mm -hmm. is global, Mm -hmm. Um, but what I found to be different in Argentina, or at least Buenos Aires, was the sheer volume of images of white, blonde, skinny, Mm -hmm. young women everywhere, and often in in states of undress. So for example, walking down the street in Buenos Aires, it's very common every two or three blocks, there's a magazine stand. And Mm -hmm. on at least one side of that magazine stand, you see women in various states of undress. And those aren't Playboy or Hustler magazines. Mm -hmm. Those are just your standard fashion magazines and tabloids. Um, Walking through the theater district, Mm -hmm. you'd see big posters of fully clothed actors, but the actresses are um, practically naked, wearing just little pasties and thongs. On the subway, I would see ads geared towards teenagers, Um, for Botox and fillers. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are things I had never really seen in Toronto. Um, Mm -hmm. So they may exist, but in my own personal experience, that's something that I never really, never really jumped out at me when I was living my life in Toronto. Um, Lingerie ads are prolific throughout the city, Uh both with women and girls, which I also found a little shocking seeing girls in kind of sexualized poses, Uh wearing kind of sexy lingerie. Um, So the sexualization... Um, and this repetitive ideal of, of very thin, white women, whereas, you know, keeping in mind that Argentina um, has a lot of different um, indigenous populations, mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of different skin-cone t- colors, but all you will see are, are white right. women, blonde white women. Yeah. Um, Barbie is really glorified right. in Argentina. Um, the very first Barbie store actually opened up in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, around 2006 and six and seven. So if there is this thin ideal with curves so busty Mm -hmm. with a big behind Um, and you see that again in magazines and in television Um, one example I give in presentations that I give about Argentina is an image um, of uh, a show which is a spin-off of Strictly Come Dancing Mm -hmm. from the UK Mm -hmm. and it's called Bailando por un sueño and it's really common to see the male dancers fully clothed with their female counterpart again in a thong or in pasties that's really really common which is just It was just really jarring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So aside from the visual Mm -hmm. culture, things that I learned over the first couple years when I was there, um, dieting is prolific as Mm -hmm. it is throughout the world, um, but learning that women I know were put on diets when they were nine months old little kids are on diets all the time Mm -hmm. and cosmetic surgery is normalized to the point where health insurance plans, um, the higher end ones will offer a free cosmetic surgery a year. Um, And I've known women that have done it just because it's free. um, And then regretted it afterwards because the the recovery time was really, really painful Mm -hmm. and and arduous. Um, And one of the things that I found really shocking is um, a milestone moment for girls in Latin American culture is their 15th birthday, mm-hmm. called the quinceañera. So it's kind of yeah, like a coming-of-age yeah, yeah. party. And it's really common for girls um, to get a, a big present. Often it can yeah. be a trip, but often yeah. they ask for cosmetic, cosmetic surgery. surgery. Yeah. Um, and the what's kind of in over the last few years is asking for breast augmentation. And right. parents and cosmetic surgeons, many of them will comply with that.
0: Right, right. So it's really tying into that. Thin ideal, but the curvy, as you said. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And so you and you were in bronized for fifteen years. Did you notice uh, a difference over that time in terms of that visual landscape? Did it amplify? Did it change in any way? Does oh, that that's an interesting
6: question. Um, that's difficult to answer uh-huh. because over the course of that fifteen years. Um, I became an activist. It's because of Argentina that I am an activist. Um, And it's not because of the visual culture, but rather the topic that we're here to Mm -hmm. talk about is the the lack of clothing sizes Mm -hmm. and my personal experience not being able to um, find clothes in my size. So one thing I can say is I don't think the visual landscape has changed. Um, What has changed is um, especially women's reaction and um, pushback. Right Against that culture, feminism has really exploded in Argentina. Yes. It's yes. really a historic moment right mm-hmm. now, um, something that I've been really fortunate and feel blessed mm-hmm. to be part mm-hmm. of um, so yeah, there has been more pushback, a lot more activism when I founded mm-hmm. anybody Argentina in two thousand and eleven there was there weren't images, there weren't articles in in, Argent- in Spanish and argentine mm-hmm. Spanish. Regarding body image, um, mm-hmm. there would be the occasional article about the lack of clothing sizes, mm-hmm. um, but nothing compared to what you find now. There is a, a bona fide wave of feminism right. um, going through Argentina, yeah. which is just beautiful to see and necessary. Yeah,
0: yeah I can imagine. Yeah. That, that can feel exciting. And so you brought up the, the issue on clothes sizing, so let's let's transition to yes. that. So we've kind of spoken about this visual culture, but you've decided to focus on the clothes sizing and that issue in terms of how that relates to body image so I wonder if you can just talk around that
5: yeah
6: so when I first moved I would hear that women had a hard time finding clothes um, and it wasn't until I actually started to, to find clothes for myself that I needed mm-hmm. and um, just to give listeners a bit of context I ranged between a size UK 8 and 12 mm-hmm. um, and a good part of the time I couldn't find clothes to fit um, or I can't find clothes to fit.
0: Right, so going into a regular store, there wouldn't be that size.
6: No, if I were to, to find clothes to fit, I would always have to take the largest size that the store offered. Um, it's really common to find one-size-fits-all stores. Okay. Uh, I don't fit into the one-size-fits-all. So the one-size-fits-all caters to smaller-sized women. So what we're used to in in the global north is... We hear of women in the plus size market who wear plus Mm sizes having very few options or not being able to find clothes. Mm -hmm. So that's been extended in Argentina where if you are not, basically what I say is non-thin women. Mm -hmm. So if you're not a thin, smaller statured woman, you're going to face difficulties um, in finding clothes to fit you. Um, in terms of stores that offer a range, it's very common to have three to four sizes. Mm-hmm. So again, four being what they would call an extra large, which would be closer to maybe a medium. Right. Um, yeah. And there are stores over the last few years, and I think part partly... Um, because of feminism, because of activism um, regarding body, age, body image and fat yeah. activism specifically, there have been stores that are recognizing that it is profitable mm-hmm. to offer a wider range of sizes. And um, through my organization, we, did, we have done a lot of work with national and local brands recognizing brands that are offering a mm-hmm. wide range of sizes. Um, and they recognize when they expand the range of sizes, it actually brings them more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no Which is something that the yeah. fashion industry has really pushed yeah. back against, saying that it's just not profitable. There, there aren't women that um, that are going to buy those clothes because Argentine women are really petite. But what we find is, um, through surveys that we've done through Anybody Argentina mm-hmm. since um, 2012 every year, is that between 65 and 70% of Argentines, specifically those that wear women's clothing, have difficulty always or frequently in mm-hmm. finding their size. Right right
0: and I think it feels intuitive how not being able to find your clothes size can influence body image so how you think and feel about the way you look right because I think it kind of gives that clear message of your body is incorrect in some way because you're you can't buy what feels like a basic right
6: to be able to buy clothes exactly exactly and the word you use is intuitive and I completely agree mm -hmm. and that's Interesting, because it's been over 20 years that eating disorder advocates have mm-hmm. been um, um, pushing and lobbying for what was called a size law, mm-hmm. where retailers would have to provide a minimum range of sizes because they felt there was a clear link between this intuitive mm. sense that there is this this link between a lack of sizes and the eating disorder rates, which some statistics in Argentina say is the second highest in the world, okay. um, you know it's hard to find yeah, reliable yeah, statistics, yeah. Sure. but that's kind of the sure. stat that floats around a lot.
0: Yeah, well, because I think it is that just very clear message that your size is not acceptable, therefore you have to change to fit exactly. the clothes, not rather the clothing industry or the fashion industry has to change to to fit people right? exactly and um, so yeah that's that's really interesting and so you have mentioned the law mm-hmm. the size law and um, it's a big question but I wonder if you could give a summary of what is this law and why did it feel
6: important okay so as I just mentioned mm-hmm. you know it's been over 20 years that that advocates um, in the eating disorder community have been pushing um, to institute a size law so in mm-hmm. 2005 the very first um, provincial size law was instituted in the province of mm-hmm. Buenos Aires. Right. Then it was geared towards adolescents specifically. Um, that retailers offer a minimum of six sizes. Okay. Um, and it was a real talking point, and the media really latched mm-hmm. onto that. And legislators in other provinces and municipalities began to recognize that this is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. So between 2005 up to the present day, there has there has been the development of 14. Different size laws. Um, wh- what has been problematic regarding that is that they've had different size ranges, they've been geared toward different populations. Um, so, in other words, there has been a lack of unification.
0: Sure. So, it could be in one province, they're like, we're saying we want six different sizes for adolescents. In a different province, they're like, we think four is okay for everyone. Is, exactly. Is that what? You're right yeah, like, yeah, basically.
6: Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest problems with the size laws, despite good intentions, mm-hmm is the fact that the norms have been based on sizing tables that don't correspond to Argentine bodies. Um, And so through our research, when we were learning about these different size laws, we realized that the foundation of these laws was flawed. Um, The data that they've been using has been based on European bodies uh, approximately 40 years ago. So they don't even apply to European bodies.
0: (laughs) Right, right. So it's kind of plucking like, oh, we want these like four sizes, six sizes, but that might not be the six sizes reflective of the majority of Argentine women. Exactly. And and isn't law limited to women?
5: No.
6: Right. So it started off with adolescent uh, girls. Right. Um, and generally the conversation is focused around mm-hmm. women. Um, through our research, um, our annual surveys, we do get um, data from people that wear men's clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's usually only about 5% of the data we receive. But in, right. in, but in conversations, um, non-official conversations with men mm-hmm. and the feedback we get... We hear a lot that if a man is not slim, for example, if he's got uh, muscular legs or Mm -hmm. if he has a fatter body, he has a really hard time finding clothes. But they don't want to talk about it because there's a stigma attached that it's a woman's problem. Right, right. Um, So... Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. Well. So. So we kind of got to the point where there's lots of different laws mm-hmm. in different provinces, and was the the problem with that was the lack of unification and across Argentina. Yes. And then it's not based on, what's the word?
6: Anthropometric data.
0: Yes, that's it. Yes, that's it. So it's not based on that. So then. What did you and your team do from there?
6: So we started doing, approximately about six years ago, um, around 2013, we started doing lobbying. Um, So lobbying, connecting with um, certain legislators Mm -hmm. that we felt had an interest in that topic. Um, We made a point to be very apolitical. We weren't aligned with any political party. We Uh were just trying to find a legislator that was interested Uh in this topic. Um, And we started pushing forward the need for, one, a unified national size mm-hmm. law, um, for all the reasons that I just explained, mm-hmm. um, and a law that is based on Argentine bodies. Right. In other words, the country needed to um, engage or, or conduct, rather, their first anthropometric study, mm-hmm. which is essentially just finding the average measurements of the Argentine population. Right. They take an mm-hmm. average of 10,000 to, 10, to 15,000 um Uh, People and get their their basic measurements, Mm -hmm. which is done through over 60 countries in the world. Um, And these studies are also um, updated every 10 years because we know bodies are evolving. Mm -hmm. So this was a really important piece of information Mm -hmm. that the laws needed um, because they found that the the sizing tables they were used based on this old European data produced really small sizes, Mm -hmm. which was part of the problem, even though deep down we knew that the real issue was the glorification of the thin ideal. Right. Um, So we started lobbying in 2013, um, just doing a lot of relationship building, Mm a lot of... Um, education and, and events to, and, and actions to try to raise the consciousness mm-hmm. um, of what the issues were specifically right. in the law. Um, there was a lot of stereotypes in, uh, around what the size law meant. So when you would see news uh, reports on it, they would you would get the famous kind of headless fatty shots where you would have images of very, very fat people without heads walking down the street saying the size law is needed for these really fat people. Um, but what we're finding is that not only fat people needed uh-huh. clothes, but people who were not thin, right. which is, there is a difference. So across right. the board. Yeah. So essentially, we're talking about um, less than 30% of the population did not have any problems. So we're talking about the majority of the population having problems finding clothes because they didn't fit this thin ideal.
0: Yeah yeah Then that's interesting that they use like a weight shaming tactic completely learn, um
6: completely uh, yes there's a there's a real um yeah normalization of dieting i mean that's a whole other conversation okay. but there's mm-hmm. a lot of weight shaming mm-hmm. um and and it's considered acceptable however again through activism and feminism mm-hmm. um across the board in in argentina there's been a lot of pushback and a lot more mm-hmm. awareness that this is not an acceptable not um practice yeah so, yeah, we've been lobbying and, and we actually helped draft uh, a national size law bill in 2016 or mm-hmm. 17. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. So there's a lot of, there was a lot of, you know, moving forward, moving backwards, yeah. moving forward, moving backwards. And and that's something that happens when you deal with, with government and legislation. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever happens quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were fortunate enough to connect with legislators in the Senate mm-hmm. and the Congress over the last year um, that were really committed to pushing forward a national size law. And um, I still can't believe it, I get goosebumps yeah. every time I say yeah, it. I'm say it <laughs> oh. So, in April, yeah. um, the national size law bill was passed in the Senate. Yeah. And just this past November, just as I moved yeah. to the UK, yeah. um, It was passed in Congress, which was truly a historic moment. I've got goosebumps everywhere. (laughs) Um, So one thing about this national size law, there had to be some compromises. Um, Mm -hmm. We did a lot of work behind the scenes with both Mm -hmm. Senate and Congress. um, And we recognize that two elements are really important for this law, the anthropometric data and having a size range. There's uh-huh. a lot of pushback from the fashion industry to actually name a size range in the national law and we realized if we dug in our heels the law the bill wouldn't pass. Right. So we decided okay we're just going to push forward with for the national for the national anthropometric study right. which incidentally had started about four years ago but still has not completely be, been completed
0: okay so it's still not done yet as still not done
6: okay. so with this passing of this law it is mandating that this study must be completed within a year of the law taking effect right I understand. um so now that the law has taken effect we still have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. i've got my colleagues leading the charge in mm-hmm. argentina um while i'm here working at the center and one of the things that we're they're really trying to push forward is getting a size a range of sizes named in the implementation mm-hmm. of the law. Right. Um, so we're mm-hmm. you know that's that's something. And the um, National Institute um, I'm just trying to think of the translation National Institute Against Discrimination, mm-hmm. a government body, is very much involved in that process with my team members back in Buenos Aires. So right. um, yeah. exciting times, and I'm really hoping that we can push forward this law that actually names a realistic size mm-hmm. range um because without that size range it's it, it would be a wasted opportunity right
0: right and to have that in in every store That
6: like, every store local national yeah. any international retailers that mm-hmm. are selling in argentina would need to follow the law so exactly. no exceptions okay
0: well, that's huge. So, probably first of all, congratulations. Thank know, you. Know, many, Definitely. the a couple of, the last couple of months because yeah, you were in the UK when that happened, so that was exciting for all of us at the centre to kind of kind of witness that moment as, a, as it were. But I also really appreciate hearing how pragmatically you you and your team went about doing that. It wasn't a, like a quick and dirty, like oh let's let's do this and get it done. It's yeah. like it's it's got a history of fifteen years building to this point and that kind of amplification kind of from what was it 2011 to really get things um, moving and a lot of relationship building and as you were saying like the back and forth Mm -hmm. um, to kind of like lock things in and then the compromise thing I think is is hard because I think sometimes it's you yeah that that you kind of have to have to do that and I think you can have the ideals what you would like but then actually what can you let go of at this point in time, mm-hmm. to then move the agenda forward Exactly. now because if you kind of stick really hard and fast on, on certain things and it doesn't happen at all, you're not moving anywhere.
6: Exactly. And well. that's ultimately the, the position and, and why we decided to move forward in that manner. Uh Um, Another really important point, I mean, collaboration with the legislators, but also collaboration with the fashion industry, because there is a lot of resistance um, and there's still a lot more work to do in terms of understanding that we're working together. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear in the fashion Mm -hmm. industry from an economic basis. Um, right. And just general human beings, were are resistance to change. Yeah, sure. um, and this is a big change. Yeah. So just speaking from the, the economy side of it, if you're a store that's offering one or two sizes, and now all of a sudden you're going to have to implement eight sizes, that's a huge economic investment. Wow. And that's one thing that we've always advocated is that the government needs to support the fashion industry with some sort of incentive or credit or, or loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're trying to show is that you make that investment, you're going to get that back and then some, which not yeah. only is going to help individual retailers, but also the economy as a whole, which is yeah. in big trouble yeah. right now. Yeah, sure. So, sure. yeah, collaboration yes. is, is key.
0: Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And, I mean, you've given a few of the next steps, but I'm, I'm wondering maybe for you in particular what, I mean, also I know that you're busy <laughs> with us and, and our team at Centre, but do you have a vision of what you would like to do next within this space?
6: Yes, I have lots of ideas. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm able to implement them all. But outside of supporting my colleagues in Argentina with mm-hmm. pushing through, um, you know, the, the next steps for the size law, I just finished my master's mm-hmm. of science thesis in, in health psychology, specifically focusing on this issue because there is no data uh-huh. Um, anywhere in the world regarding clothing size availability and body image. Yeah,
0: and I think that's something. I mean, we've we've spoken about this before. That's really interesting. Like right? when we're talking about the role of business and body mm-hmm. image, we kind of automatically go to that vi- visual landscape that yes. we were speaking about at the beginning. And so that is definitely important. But it's kind of this this far far less work looking at any other business action mm-hmm. so, yeah
6: like the practices so yeah, yeah you, we've got the visuals but how is are the visuals impacting the practice yes. um yes. within you know whether it's fashion industry or the beauty industry mm-hmm. um, so I, I have big visions I'm not sure what I'm going but I'm gonna be focusing on Argentina to start I'd like to continue with my master's thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, to see what relationship there is between a lack of clothing sizes and body image outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also eating behavior outcomes, yeah. um, like yeah. dieting, because that's something that we found with anybody, Argentina's research, that um, when women can't find their clothes, find clothes to fit them, um, they feel bad about their body. Mm-hmm. Um, over 10% started diet, mm-hmm. Just under 10% engage in maladaptive behaviors mm-hmm. like purging and excessive mm-hmm. exercise. Um, dietary restraints. so we know or we suspect mm-hmm. there, there there is indication that um there are some some negative outcomes so i'd like to continue that research in argentina and mm-hmm. also examine other cultures sure. because i'm getting hints that this is not argentina is not the only place that mm-hmm. this happens right. um, but without the research um, and the evidence to show that it is a problem we we can't tackle it
0: sure Sure. So
6: that's my, my big vision. Yeah. We'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Yeah,
0: no, very exciting. I'll be very keen to see how that, that pans out as Thanks. well. So. Brilliant. So Sharon, this has been so informative. And I mean, I've heard about much of this, a lot of this before, but every time I hear it, I'm like eager to find out more and listen. So thank you for sharing uh, all of that with me. It's so impressive and inspiring. And I think it's it is something that's overlooked from the academic point of view in terms of Mm -hmm. body image research so I'm really pleased that you're doing this and then combining it with real world
6: change in terms of like changing the law which is huge thank you really phenomenal I really appreciate the giving me the space to kind of talk about what's happening in Argentina because I think the international community Mm -hmm. um, needs to know what's happening because I don't think it's an isolated um, incident yeah and this
0: can lead the way you know and I think that's something that's we can we can think about in terms of when you're creating change it's like how you have the trickle effect mm-hmm. uh, internationally so that's that's kind of exciting to think about but before we go and we get back to work yes interior, <laughs> i want to finish up and ask you my very important cake question i know you know it's coming um but so as you know we have our weekly cake and coffee morning yes um i wonder if there's anything in particular that's from argentina that you would bring i mean that's a bit of a spin and i didn't warn you about that but um (laughs) is there like a traditional cake or dessert in argentina that 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 maybe you could bring for us, and I can try.
6: (laughs) Yes, there is the first thing that comes to mind are alfajores, and the best way I can kind of describe them are like uh, wagon wheels. So kind of like like cookies with some like covered in chocolate Mm -hmm. with some caramel, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're like wagon wheels times a thousand. Like they're super rich and much 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 better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that would be yeah, I can find some variety and you have different flavors they have dulce de leche oh yeah um, that. Yeah, yeah which is like really, caramel yeah thing. and that like is leche. very argentine so yeah. i will definitely bring back some well, of those i was going to
0: say this is very convenient because you're going to argentina after this Indonesia i am trip, so then you can make sure you have some space in your suitcase just going to casually put that out there that's going to go out to the podcast so people are going to want to know we'll have to have a picture on on twitter or whatever definitely definitely i'll I'll come back back with plenty of alcohol no no pressure
6: (laughs) i think it's a reasonable request okay
0: brilliant well thank you ever so much uh i'm really glad we got to do this
6: i'm i'm really grateful thank you again nadia for giving me this space and Mm -hmm. and my colleagues in argentina i know will be really pleased to hear this so thanks again yeah no worries
1: That was so interesting. It's incredible to think about the process of changing the law, actually.
0: Yeah, of actually doing it. Um, And I think it's really interesting thinking about different ways industry can impact people's body image. I think with fashion, we so uh, quickly think about fashion models on the catwalk and fashion imagery in editorial, in magazines, on billboards, on Instagram, whatever, like just the, the images, but actually how the clothing, the products can make people feel less than in some way. I think is a really um is a really overlooked area. So I think it's a really exciting area of future research.
1: I agree and like trying on different clothes is a very personal experience. Mm. And it quite can be quite um what's the word I'm looking for? Confronting. Fun fact, I used to work in the changing rooms oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah, a yeah. retail store mm-hmm. and the amount of body talk that used to go on, it didn't even involve me, but I used to go away feeling negative because of the amount of body talk in that context from others.
0: Yeah, well, it just raises so much. And I think you it's so easy to attach an identity based on your clothes size. So you're like, oh, I am size X. mm mm-hmm. And then if size X doesn't fit, then it becomes very anxiety-inducing for some people. And I think what makes that really complicated is that sizing in different stores changes. It's so easy to get upset in that setting, and then and that's where the body talk comes in. Of course, and it's a comparative
1: process on many levels between yourself and others, perhaps, with sizes. Mm-hmm. Even, like you say, they change, so yeah. I don't know why. But also comparison between yourself in time. So I was size X before, and mm-hmm. now I'm this, and in all those kind of things can be problematic in so many ways.
0: Yeah, so definitely something to think about.
1: What would you like fashion brands to do more of to promote body confidence, actually to make you feel better in your own body?
5: Have more photos on, on the websites or on social media of bigger girls and smaller girls to show that there is diversity between all of them. And also, in-shop, maybe more mannequins that are bigger sizes because they're always size zero, four. And that's no good to promote some like to help someone who's slightly bigger. That's going to make them feel awful.
4: I guess getting like a more sort of like standard idea of body types, sort of like a more range of body types and stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I'm a big lad and sometimes coats don't even fit me. Yeah.
1: What would you like fashion brands to do more of to promote body confidence and to make you feel better?
4: I would feel like I want it to be more unisex. It's very like some of it is very diverse. I want people to not be so like. Backwards in a way that they are scared of fashion. I feel like people need to learn more about it. They need to be more confident. Um, I feel like they just need to embrace all these different body shapes and what people need.
2: I think definitely what you're saying about plus-size models, yeah, that needs to be, like, a lot more range- in their sizes of people, because they may sell the clothes that they have on the racks for like different sizes, but they don't really always advertise them. So, they need to be able to show how you can adapt the fashion to feel confident and like feel good in what you're wearing, no matter what size you are. I think it would be really great like when you look um, online for me I think I'm more likely to buy something if I can see what it looks like on a model and I it would be really great actually as just as a random thought that they had it on somebody who is slightly smaller and then the same item of clothing on someone slightly bigger so when you look through the photos you can see how that item looks on different sizes and that would probably encourage therefore the like when they're making the clothes to think about the who they're for, and the different sizes that they're making them in. If anyone does that, you heard that here first, by the way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was coined here. Mr. Week. Yeah, yeah, good point.
2: <laughs> no, that was excellent um, yeah. points. Has anyone got any other final thoughts? I votes? would like to say that they should standardise the actual range of sizes, because a yes. four
3: size 14 in Merleys and Spencers is totally different to a Zara size 14, for instance, and it just varies too much. So you don't know what you're looking for in the end. No.
1: I completely agree and it's quite disheartening when you're 12 somewhere and then you're 16 somewhere else and you're like, what's
0: going on? <laughs> so a huge, huge thank you to our two guests, Karen Franklin, MBE, and Sharon Haywood, and to all of our members of the public who spoke to you, Jade, at Bristol Fashion Week. Yeah, it
1: was great to hear from everyone and get lots of different perspectives. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode and found it useful in any way, please do rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't mentioned this in the, quite a few last episodes. It's helpful for other people to find us. So please, please, please do share and rate and, yeah, tell your friends. write review, subscribe. Ooh, like it. Simple. Yeah. The three, the three steps to yeah. sharing our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. That's it from us. (laughs) See you next time.